0: Welcome to the Health Design Podcast. I am your host, Moyez Jiwa. Speaking with me today is Charles Joseph Camarda, an American engineer and a NASA astronaut who flew his first mission into space on board the space shuttle mission STS-114. He served as Senior Advisor for Engineering Development at NASA Langley Research Center. We present Charlie Camarda. Welcome to the show, First time I've spoken to a real-life astronaut, this is like talking to a rock star. Let's start from there. What's your journey today?
1: I just recently retired from NASA. So I had worked for NASA right out of um, gra- right after I graduated from Brooklyn Polytech as an undergraduate. So I had worked for NASA for over 46 years. And so I was, I was fairly old when I decided to reapply to be an astronaut. I was 44 years old. Didn't get to fly till I was actually fifty-three.
0: So you can still do it physiologically, you can still fly even into your fifties.
1: Absolutely. As a matter of fact, when I was training, that's when John Glenn flew for his second time when he was 77 years old.
0: Because our image of astronauts is of these young in their twenties and in their thirties. <laughs> you know, we watched them on the on the documentaries training and and uh being in their physical peak when they actually get on board those those aircraft uh, you, you you seem to say that you can actually be that bit older is it about experience you can be
1: older I was in shape even though I even though I was fairly old so you definitely have to be in shape because it takes a lot out of you especially if you're up there for extended periods of time as you well know you know uh, being in a microgravity weightless environment wreaks havoc on the uh, draws a lot of minerals out of the bones. And so you demineralize your bones and your muscles atrophy and your organs. And so you have to actually do an awful lot of exercise when you're in space, two to three hours a day, if you're there for extended periods of time.
0: And what was it like working for NASA?
1: You know, working for NASA, that was my dream. That was my dream job. I wanted to be an astronaut, you know, since I was about six years old. It was every kid's dream back then in the the 60s, 70s. Uh, you know, the space race, the Russians against us, uh, seeing those Mercury 7 astronauts, the Mercury 7 Apollo Gemini astronauts that were they were our heroes, you know. So any kid that had a thirst for knowledge, was curious, like science, technology, engineering, math, you know, that was the job for
0: them. How do you think it prepared you for life on terra firma, if we can put it that way, for life back on Earth? There must have been so much that you could bring back from, from your space training that has been of value to you now.
1: Well, yeah, it was totally different. You know, and, uh, I'm in the process of writing a book on high-performing teams. Mm-hmm. And, and so as I, when I was a researcher working on these um, very complex, multi-interdisciplinary problems... You know, you pull together these teams and you solve them in a very converged way, how you solve these problems. And so now uh, being an, an astronaut and working as a small team with a much larger team on the ground, being trained for a specific mission was a totally different type of, of training. And so everything I, I, I learned as a researcher, I had to almost throw out the door because when you're in dynamic phases of flight, you, you only have eight minutes. You have seconds, minutes to make decisions and do things. So you really don't have time to try to tease out and, and, and try to understand what's happening around you. So as you prepare for those kinds of missions, uh, you kind of have to go through all these different anomalies that could possibly happen. And you work through them in a very uh, structured way.
0: So you really are preparing to deal with complexity, but at speed.
1: Yes. And so usually you prepare for almost every possible thing that could go wrong, everything that can malfunction. And you train and you train and you train and you carry this book. It's called Flight Data File, but it has all the procedures. You know, As soon as you identify what you think is wrong with the system, then you have to work closely with the team of the people in the spacecraft communicate with the people on the ground. So that's why pilots are very uh, are very good for this type of environment. They have to aviate, communicate, navigate. When they're flying a plane, they have to multitask, and they have to solve a lot of these problems as a team, whether it's a one or two ship, two people in the aircraft, or, uh, and people on the ground.
0: There are a lot of analogies, I think, with medicine, and and particularly Uh acute medicine, where you're dealing with people who are very ill very quickly and where minutes can save lives. And yet, here we are in a world that has faced probably the biggest challenge that we've seen mankind facing for many, many decades. And we have now got a common enemy as a human race, wreaking havoc. And to some extent, we've responded quite well as a community, and in other ways, we haven't. Where to from here?
1: It's funny you say that, you know, because as you know, I run a program called the Epic Challenge Program, an educational program teaching uh, children how to solve complex problems and and actually adults how to solve complex problems, how to work together in teams. And what I learned right after the Columbia accident, which drove me down this path, was that I watched supposedly very intelligent scientists, engineers, program managers make these terrible decisions and not be able to make sense of the information uh, that they were seeing, not being able to model the information properly, and to make very, very sophomoric mistakes. And so when you're talking about these very complex problems that are interrelated in many different ways, many different disciplines, in nonlinear dynamic ways. It's not a deterministic problem, you know, especially when you put humans in the loop. And so what we're seeing right now, very smart people in, in the United States, they're making mistakes. Things they said a month ago were totally disproven weeks, weeks later. And so these very smart people that have been used to solving the problem the same way in a particular profession, a particular discipline, go back and follow these same rules, processes, and procedures. And they're not well equipped to handle something that's that's different or to come up with an innovative solution to the problem. Because these problems are so large. It's not just medical, it's and an any aspect of the of medical. Part, virology, the epidemiology, it's very much a system. It's very much how people are interacting in that system. Uh, You're seeing bad dysfunctional behavior, just like you did during any one of these accidents. And so a lot of it is the culture, the psychology, the behavioral science, and sociology, how these people work together and make decisions or prevent the right information from being passed along.
0: That really fascinates me, because what you're talking about there is not just data, as in binary data, yes, no data. You're talking about really quite complex systems, not just the numbers, it's other things. I was interested to hear you use the word sociology. It's not a word I would have heard an astronaut use who's used to the physics of uh, motion and so on. So talk a little bit about that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. You know, I was training in Russia when the accident happened. Dr. Jiwa, and and when I uh, we were huddled in in our cottages in Russia in Star City, Russia, and I watched this large piece of foam when they sh- when they told us we lost the crew, we lost the vehicle, and they showed what happened during launch. I just could not believe that these people made this decision. You know, because if they would have contacted me. my area of expertise was thermal protection systems. I would have said, this is a very serious problem. And so what happens is there were some people that said, you know, maybe we should go for outside help. Maybe we should ask the Air Force to maybe use their assets to view the vehicle when it's in orbit to see if there was damage. And people told them not to do that. They were shut down. And so you have an environment. And so Uh, When you look at any of these accidents, Challenger, Columbia, Blue Horizon, the oil rig, the oil spill in the, in the Gulf of Mexico, what you'll see are these cultures. Sometimes they, they have what they call a psychologically unsafe environment. People are not allowed to raise dissenting opinions without fear of interpersonal risk, damage to their careers. And you see it, uh, it's the same thing that happens in the medical profession right, why doctors make mistakes. Uh, Other people with lower status do not raise their hand, do not speak out uh, for fear of retribution. And so the Columbia accident investigation said, yeah, while the technical cause of the accident was this piece of foam that came off the vehicle and hit the shuttle orbiter and damaged it critically, the real cause of the problem were this dysfunctional culture.
0: How do we identify that? Where to from here? We can't rewrite history. These things have happened. Sadly, they've happened. The Colombia happened. Coronavirus has happened. Yeah. And, you know, some of the decisions that we see made in the coronavirus pandemic are just as worrying almost as the, the decisions that were made that were much more spectacular, albeit they were involving fewer people. Why have we made the same mistake again?
1: Yeah, you see, you see it over and over again. We're seeing it right now with Boeing and the 737 MAX. And so they're going to keep repeating themselves this cycle. And a matter of fact, right after the Columbia accident, there was a severely critical issue with my wing leading edge on my vehicle. That the, that the program office did not want to address. They were keeping it under the radar, but it was a systemic problem and they were continuing to fly. And I had to basically stand up and say, no, we, we have to fix this problem. And so why don't people, why don't they learn from these mistakes? Because the sociologists like Diane Bourne, who wrote the book, The Challenger Launch Decision, and identified many of these uh, dysfunctional behaviors, was there during the Columbia disaster and even told NASA what they needed to do. But changing a culture is very difficult, number one. Number two, you have people that at NASA are mostly technical people. And so they might not uh, believe that sociology is a real science. Psychology is a real science, a hard science like physics. Whatever the reason is, they do not put in place a mechanism to change the culture it really ha- it really takes very strong leadership it takes constant surveillance and health monitoring to make sure because if you can imagine these hundreds and hundreds of of branches divisions and groups of people within nasa it only takes a breakdown in one of those little intricate networks within this huge network of networks to be highly dysfunctional, to not identify when there is a serious problem, to be afraid to identify and bring that forward to cause a major disaster, like we're seeing with the 737 Mac. And so I believe it's a natural human tendency. It takes very, very strong leadership and monitoring and, and so what I'm looking at right now, I believe, since these there are these complex problems, you really can't predict all the things that could go wrong. I'm looking at developing a team of teams approach and using artificial intelligence and machine learning to understand the ghost in the machine, watching what's going on, the the behaviors, uh, monitoring the the um, communication. And if you can train a machine to identify these dysfunctional behaviors, so that you could identify when these weak signals occur, you could shine enough light on it that it will have enough attention that the right people will come to bear to recognize that it's a problem and do something about it. Because if you just leave it to to good people that have no fear and are not afraid of losing their jobs and their careers, things will break down.
0: That's the worry, isn't it? That that we, we as a as a race we like to have strong leaders who give us comfort at times when we're facing a challenge and we want them to be decisive, and yet we need them also to listen to the voice of reason. And often that means they, their defense. If you're sitting in that particular position of power, is to say, I don't want, ana- I don't want paralysis by analysis. This is the direction we're going in, and I've made my, I've made the call. And often you say that call is going to end up with a loss of life.
1: When you think about it, in this, in this particular instance, I, I don't know much. This is not my field of expertise. But if we had a system in place that actually sensed when this outbreak occurred and contained it immediately, that that would have That may have prevented this. So if you live in a free world where communication is open and transparent and everyone has access to it, you would hope that the right people would have eyes on uh, situations like that. And and so if we can't do that, then how do we how do we do that right now? Monitor countries with nuclear proliferation and things like that. Mm -hmm. How do we design in systems that we could sense and identify? issues before they happen.
0: That's the worrying thing, isn't it? If this can happen in one context, it could happen in another context. And with just as devastating circumstances, it takes one bad decision by one person who doesn't really get the whole picture for all of mankind to be at risk. We found that now. We've discovered it.
1: Absolutely. And you saw the good doctors that that recognized that this was an issue. And they live in an oppressive society where um, you don't hear about them anymore. You don't know what happened to some of those to some of those people. So it's definitely not a psychologically safe environment. You and I grew up in a field of science where you are allowed to have these uh, these very tough discussions, this critical thinking and this give and take back and forth almost shouting sometimes amongst my colleagues, but it all amounted to bringing the data to the table, and the analysis, and getting the right people to look at that the right way. And sometimes it also takes people outside of that technical Mm. discipline to see something that we don't see.
0: Mm. Okay, let's drill down a little bit more, and here you're allowed to speculate. You said that the information that we needed to pay attention to was sociological, was psychological in order to avert a technical disaster. What's your reading of the situation here? Where do you think were the sociological and psychological data that was pointing in a different direction to the one that we eventually took?
1: I would say if you look at the the colleagues that were identifying when the outbreak first started, and some people saw this as an issue. And then if you were just uh, if you were just a sociologist or a behavioral scientist looking at how those decisions were made in around that table of those doctors and those politicians and those bureaucrats and how they came to those decisions and whether they based those decisions on factual information and a good a good understanding of the problem. A lot of times we don't have the tools to act actually Give us the right analysis. In the case of Columbia, they had a very simplistic method for assessing whether or not a piece of debris would cause damage. It was not really based in physics. It was not a good physics-based decision. And the very limited amount of testing that they had done was on a very small piece of foam, yet they had to extrapolate almost, almost 400 times with a very poor, a very crude model. And make these predictions, and I think you're seeing that now also with these different models that people are trying to predict the spread of this virus and how badly some of them are. And it's because uh, in some cases they didn't have enough test data, right? And so they underpredicted or the, uh, or they overpredicted death rates in in some instances. And so I think when when we in the United States, I listened to Dr. Burks. I think she totally understands modeling and simulation and the errors that are inherent and in the assumptions made in that analysis. What happens is when high-level managers sees this briefing, they don't have that comprehension of the error and the assumptions that were made and those simplifying assumptions and how critical that is to understanding whether or not the results from this model could could be accurate.
0: Lack of technical understanding, but what about the the sociology, psychology? Where does that come into play at this point?
1: You know, one of the things that that Diane Vaughan recommended to NASA, she said, you know, because she was what you would call a historical ethnographer. She was reading transcripts. She was interviewing people after the fact. And what you really needed was someone. That had this training that was embedded within the culture, that could actually observe the culture, not affect the culture, just like you do in, you know, when you're studying different cultures. If you had a person with that training in that room, you would immediately be able to identify these bad behaviors, whether the leaders at the table were commanding um, certain decisions to be made, whether they were stifling good inquisitive discussions.
0: Really, it would need to be a very brave person though, wouldn't they, to actually stand up to the person in power and say, mate, you're wrong. That decision is a bad decision for this reason. Something's been lost in the translation between you and your advisor. And this is what it is. And
1: look, at so many different cultures. You know, you need to have that, you need to enable a psychologically safe environment where you can have these disruptive people to push back and show you what you were doing wrong, you know, the court jester, the hayoka, the, the person that can make the king or the queen, you know, make a fool out of them in public, just to let them see how crazy their logic, their thinking is, right? Mm-hmm. And not, have, not be beheaded, right? Correct. You have
0: to have that environment. Yeah, that's an amazing insight. And from somebody who, has been, as you say, in a position where one wrong decision means 11 lives are lost yeah. immediately, spectacularly, and to the embarrassment of everybody concerned. Yeah. So if we are now thinking about the future in terms of in the healthcare environment, would you be recommending that you have somebody like that in an emergency department, somebody like that in a theater environment, in an operating theater environment, where the risks are high, Maybe somebody floating around the primary care environments, watching what's going on.
1: Absolutely. You remember when we had these accidents in the aerospace industry, they started teaching what was called uh, cockpit resource management or crew resource management, because what they found was that these pilots, when you're in the heat of a battle and when you're in an emergency room and everything's going on uh, A lot of things are going wrong all at once. You tend to hyper focus and narrowly focus on one thing and you lose sight of the big picture. And so it's like you get drawn in and you need to step back and you need to listen and you need to be able to communicate to the people around you. And because it's very easy to happen, this happens naturally uh, when when you study teams that are that are in extreme environments, Mm -hmm. like a like a space shuttle during a launch, like an 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 operating room in the heat of battle uh, on the battlefield. You have to be able to study the situation, look at uh, look at it uh, down in, but you have to you have to can't lose sight of the big picture.
0: It's the big picture. You're right. You're focused on this dial here, and it's saying the altitude is falling. All you're interested in is getting that dial to move back up. And what you're not That's noticing right. is the fuel gauge is going in a different direction. That's right.
1: That's <laughs> right. right. You're uh, yeah, absolutely right. It happens. And so what you do is you train for this, just like we train as astronauts, just like Navy SEALs train in all these adverse, extreme environments. And people study how these groups of people react in these situations as a team just like you have emergency room teams you know some teams will be will perform much better than others but you you try to psych out these behaviors in the training and what's amazing is when you're in these very extreme environments these behaviors become accentuated you immediately find out when you're in an extreme environment and you have to make decisions. You definitely understand the worst in your comrades comes out, and you can identify which people you really want to fly and really want to go into battle with very quickly. So you have to have this training, and so that's that's what I teach. Also, is uh, teaching people how to fail. You know, you fail in the laboratory. You fail smart, fast, small, cheap, early, and often. So when the time comes and the battle comes you're well-trained as a team.
0: This is really leadership 101, isn't it? You need to recognize your own blind spots and how you're going to respond and who is going to give you the information that you need that you've become blind
1: to. And so, you know, all all that ego has to be checked at the door. If someone else has the specialty Mm -hmm. and has the expertise, that person has to step in and become the leader. On, a, on an aircraft carrier, when there's a severe fire, the commander put the, the person in charge, uh, the fire captain, is the one that's in charge. He runs. He gives the orders.
0: I can't imagine a situation where, in this circumstance, the people who most know what needs to be done are going to be put in charge, because the captains decided to go in a particular direction. <laughs>
1: yeah, usually... Usually the people that seek the power are not the ones you want to be in power, right?
0: On that note, I have to say, it's been a joy speaking with you. Uh, thank you for <laughs> taking me on this ride on your spacecraft. I can see that we have a lot to learn.
1: Uh, my, my pleasure. Thanks for having me.
0: The Journal of Health Design. Better health by design. Visit us at thejournalofhealthdesign.com.